0: Hi, and welcome to episode 128 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and today I'm very excited to be bringing you my conversation with Sam Leach, one of our leading painters and one of the most fascinating artists I've interviewed on the podcast. I've been wanting to interview Sam for a while now. He's one of only three artists to ever win the Archibald and Wynne Prizes in the same year, the other two being William Dobell and Brett Whiteley, two of our greatest painters of the 20th century and so great company to be in. I remember seeing those two small paintings hanging in the Art Gallery of New South Wales in 2010 and being struck by their beauty and detail. And although it's usually the Archie that attracts controversy, that year it was Sam's win prize painting that caused a media storm and we talk all about that in this episode. I've always been intrigued in the development of Sam's work since then, which has to do with science and nature, including exploration into new perspectives of seeing through the use of artificial intelligence and machine learning." His work has a surrealist science fiction-y feel, but his early interest in Dutch masters of the 17th century continues to shine through in his work. In his current show at Sullivan & Strumpf in Sydney, you'll see moody utopian landscapes teamed with huge bubbles and globular and tubular forms. Other works depict animals, particularly polar bears, from a surprising AI perspective. But for all the passion and interest Sam has on the intersection between science and art, and he even completed his PhD philosophy thesis on this subject, his humour does break through from time to time and the fur-covered interactive polar bear detector which is part of the show is not to be missed. The exhibition with the unsettling title, Everything Will Probably Be Fine, continues until 16th of July 2022. He's had 30 solo shows nationally and across the globe. He's won several other awards apart from the Arch In Win and his work is held in many private and public collections including the National Portrait Gallery. All the works we talk about are on the website talkingwithpainters.com and just a heads up, about 10 minutes in, it started pouring outside Sam's studio in case you're wondering what that background noise is but it only lasts a few minutes. Hope you enjoy my conversation with Sam Leach. I love starting from the very beginning because I love hearing about artists' stories, about, you know, their childhoods. And, and I know in your, with your work, science is a huge part of your work. So I'm interested to see how much art there was as well, like whether you came from an artistic family.
1: Um, well, first of all, let me just say thank you very much for having me on the on the show. I've uh, been wanting to do it for ages, but uh, but too shy to go forward and ask. So I'm so glad that you yeah, <laughs> you've approached. You've
0: been on the list for a long time. <laughs> I tell you that. I've Got to get Sam Lynch. Got to get Sam.
1: <laughs> but yeah, um, in terms of uh, my childhood, I, I wasn't exceptionally arty. I mean, there was art around and. Um, Like we had a couple of uh, prints in the house, you know, like a a Monet water lilies and uh, like a, you know, a Tom Roberts, a Tom Roberts print.
0: Yeah. Do you remember which one it was?
1: Oh, it was shearing the rams. Oh, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a shearer in there that looks uncannily like my father. So it's a, it's (laughs) a bit of a, bit of a family joke. So that's why, that's why we had that.
0: Yeah. Um, There's a lot to look at in that one, actually.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah. It's a great one to have on the wall as a kid because you do keep finding little uh, little details that that creep out.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So it's um yeah, it is a nice one for that. But like there wasn't it wasn't like um uh you know it was an exceptionally um you know art heavy environment. So my father was a um, a public servant amongst uh, amongst a few other things and uh, trained as an economist and and did that. And my mother worked in telecom at the uh, at the time, and later later went on to uh, do a, a couple of other organisations. So it was probably more of a, uh, a family tradition of bureaucracy than um, than <laughs> art.
0: <laughs> and were you but were you drawing and that sort of thing? Like, were you one of those kids? Yeah, yeah, me? I drew.
1: I, yes, I did. I drew a lot, but I never really I, like I never really thought of myself as uh, you know a particularly artsy kid. I just I just did it because I liked it, and I did you know some watercolour painting um, you know when I felt like doing it and. Like, not going to lie, I thought I was pretty good at it, um, but it's not. It's not like I ever received you know huge accolades or attention for the amazing drawings that I was doing. Um, it was just something I did for fun. And then through um, high school, I did a lot of cartoons and caricatures of the teacher, and uh, you know, stupid drawings and things to amuse my friends. So I did. I did do that, and you know, the little the little things on the back of the toilet doors in in the school. So that was kind of my um, uh, you know my main vector of artistic expression through that period and and again I was never I was never I like I liked art class at school but I was never one of the the arty kids there that just wasn't my scene at that time.
0: Yeah, right, that's so interesting. It's also interesting how many guys are interested in cartooning and stuff like that. I mean, more so than women. It's sort of interesting, isn't it? I don't, I don't quite know what that might might be, but maybe uh, it's, it's pro- because of comics. <laughs>
1: I mean, yeah, it's it's that, and also, um, you know, I don't want to get too deep, but it's probably a safe way of having an artistic expression, you know, because it's not, you know, it's not super serious. You're just, uh, you know, if it's a bit, if it's a bit crap, it's okay. It's a joke. Uh, uh, just laughing yeah, about it. Yeah. It's fine. I never
0: thought of you're that. You're not really,
1: you're not really uh, exposing any uh, any vulnerability or anything. If you're if you're doing a caricature of a teacher with a big nose or something, it's yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just that's just funny.
0: Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Did you like Mad Magazine?
1: Of course, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was a, I was an avid reader of that and um, uh, and the Viz comics as well. I was very into those. Yeah, that was probably an early an early influence in a funny way.
0: Yeah, but it's sort of interesting because you went on after school. You went on to study economics. You did a bachelor yep. economics. Was it a toss up or was it really clear that you no, weren't going to do art?
1: I was never going to do art. Um, the the toss up was between things like economics. Um, I was kind of tempted by medicine uh, as well, but I was a bit put off by that because it was too much work yeah. uh, in the in the course. Whereas economics only had twelve contact hours in the first year, and that really that really suited me at the time. Um, yeah, I'm quite I'm, I'm quite a lazy person, and um, that's <laughs> <laughs> that's in many ways guided my choices. Uh, including that one, but the, the big thing actually was just that my uh, my group of friends at school like we all went and did economics at Adelaide uni together, so that just seemed like yeah sure like uh, that sounds fun let's uh, let's all go do that. I did enjoy the statistics and the data analysis side of it that was quite interesting to me, and I also um, i'm very interested in politics and how society functions. And and economics was a really interesting lens for kind of connecting all of those all of those things. So, mm. yeah, I found it really interesting and quite rewarding.
0: And what so after that, you you worked in the tax office. And so, what was that like? Was that f- interesting?
1: I mean, it, initially, no, it was, <laughs> it, was, it was it was pretty awful. Like the first part of the tax office that I worked in was the actually the child support agency. You know, it's just the part that. Uh, takes money from parents that don't have custody of a child and gives it to the parents who do have custody. And um, you know, it was a pretty tense workplace to go into because there's so many emotional issues being dealt with in that space. And that was uh yeah, it was it was really a really tough job and um, yeah like as a as a kind of you know young economics graduate I didn't really have the emotional tools to to deal with it in a in a very effective way. Mm.
0: Well what it was when you were still working there that you started going to art school how did that come about?
1: I was still drawing and painting like all the time in my in my spare time and um, I like I enjoyed that I had a, um, I published a like an art zine sort of thing uh, briefly with a with a friend of mine, and you know, I showed some drawings in uh, in a couple of cafes and, and things like that. So, um, I was always doing it, and I was I was filling up sketchbooks and um, you know experimenting with different media of of, of making artwork. So, um, I was doing a lot of it, and then. Um, I was interested in kind of, you know, just developing my skills as, as one does. So I, I started doing a range of courses, like a life drawing course and a course here and a course at the, um, you know, at the CAE and the TAFE. Like it was a really good introduction that way because I started with the very, very fundamentals of, you know, just the basics of, of drawing. Um, and then at the, and you know, and then when I started doing a course at, at TAFE, uh, the RMIT TAFE. So um, I was around this time we moved to Melbourne Um, That was when my uh, now wife graduated from uni and there was no jobs in Adelaide. So we, so we moved over here. Of course I was with the tax office, so I could just get a transfer and then coming to Melbourne. Yeah. There was like a wider range of artistic courses and things available as well. And this, this RMIT course was part-time on evenings and weekends, which was, which was perfect. So I started doing that and yeah, it was great because they went into the fundamentals of, you know, like from the basics of how to, how to prepare your materials and then, into uh, you, you know the fundamentals of composition and color theory, life drawing, you know through to using uh, you know tools like photoshop and photography to develop work so uh, but a really good grounding in practical art skills and so it was taking up more and more more and more time uh, as I was doing that, and I guess you know if i'm if I'm really honest in the back of my mind, I did have a, a vague hope that you know maybe I could develop this into something more than just a hobby, but it was it was more of a um, you know maybe who knows but it's fun to do anyway like alongside the TAFE the the university at that time also offered a part-time fine arts course which again was on in evenings and uh, and the weekends Um, and because I was working in the city I could also go to some lectures during the day um, in the week so i would just skip out of work for an hour or two and head down to an art history lecture and then skip back in and the, the beautiful thing about that course was we had the same teacher's right through the whole, you know, four-year program. So David Thomas and Sally Mannell were the two artists that that were teaching us. But it was almost like an atelier system, you know, like working with these specific artists through that long period. So they had, they developed, you know, of course, a very good understanding of what my interests were and and my practice and how I was responding to things. And, And I, you know, got to know quite a bit about their practice and how they did things and learned like a lot, a lot from them. Um, And I I feel like that's a fairly um, rare opportunity in in art schools is to have that very long term engagement with, um, you know, a a senior practising artist. And that was, that was incredibly valuable.
0: So at that point, you were um, painting a lot, I presume it was painting that you were majoring in? Well,
1: no, I mean, I was like, I was interested in painting. And I did, I did keep making paintings, but they tended to be uh, more components in, you know, in installation based practice. So I would I would paint, uh, you know, monochromes or, or just colour blends to occupy a space in a, in a particular way. Not, not really, um, uh, you know, figurative or representational painting. And part of that, I think, was because in that part-time program, we didn't really have our own permanent studio space. So we would just sort of come in and set up in one of the, one of the daytime students' studios and kind of squat in there for, for our period. And then have to pack everything away, and that's not very conducive, really, to um, especially the type of painting that I do, where you know it's a, it's a bit of a process. Yeah. So that was an influence on the kind of work I did. But also, David Thomas and Sally their like their practices are um, like there's particularly David Thomas says there's, there's painting involved, but um, you know he's more about doing uh, experiential installations. It's very it's very strongly related to you know minimalism. And that kind of uh, phenomenological work so that's what I got interested in and that's what I was doing in the in undergraduate
0: oh okay so what caused the shift to more representational work
1: um I just I just felt like doing it um so I can well I can tell you precisely so I was very interested in um both real spaces and uh illusory spaces so creating confusion around that and I was looking at how painters were, were doing that. And I got struck by these uh, 17th century Dutch painters, which obviously has been you know, big, a big theme of my practice ever since. But what I was really interested in at first was the backgrounds that the, that the figures were placed in and how they created these very appealing voids and, and infinite spaces. So I was really starting to to try and recreate those, those kind of effects. So I didn't have any any figures in them. It was just the voids. And then I basically just decided to start putting the figures in it as well to just have something occupy that infinite space and continue with that illusion.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, and that's how I got into it. So as soon as I started you know, putting them in there, I, that was it. I was I was kind of hooked on doing that, and there was, was so much to get into. And um, I, I'm happy to say that I've got the classic painter's story of starting to make those paintings and then have uh, one of the... Um, one of the art lecturers come around and say, oh, Sam, what are you doing this painting for? It's so outdated and anachronistic. Uh, you, can't, you can't do that. You were just starting to make interesting work and now you're taking this giant step backwards. So, so luckily, luckily they gave me something to push against and uh, earn my artistic credentials
0: <laughs> yeah, uh, in, the, in right, the art school system. Right. Yeah, you gotta have you've got to have that story up your sleeve. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because, I mean, this, we're talking about the early 2000s, so what, about 2003 or something like that, I think. Uh, around it? then,
1: yeah, 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 early 2000s, yep.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting that representational painting has become much more in fashion, I think, now yeah. than, it, than it was back then.
1: That's true. I, I mean, there was, there was a group of painters in Melbourne that I was friends with. So this is people like Tony Lloyd, Juan Ford, Darren Wardle, Heidi Yardley, um, who, were, who were making these, these really good paintings that I loved and, you know, I enjoyed hanging around them. So that was a, definitely a big influence on me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a sense in that group of, if you like, the unfashionability of, of the painting but nevertheless like a determination to you know continue with the practice and develop it and uh, and push it so yeah. you know that was a really nice environment to be in and, and you know going to each other's shows and looking at it and talking yeah. about it and um yeah so, so you weren't was, creating
0: in a vacuum or
1: anything yeah right? no no exactly yeah, yeah. exactly there was, a, it was it was a really good group to be involved with developing as a painter i mean those guys were all a couple of years ahead of me so it was you know it was nice to have an aspirational thing to look up to and try and keep up with
0: well, you did. I mean, you went on to do your masters, and you've you've even done your PhD since then as well, of course. Yes. But after doing your um your bachelors, and you, you know, you started exhibiting and you started winning prizes, um, so you've started really becoming noticed very early on after you finished uni. But um, I want to jump forward, of course, to. 2010, which is the big, the big double whammy. Uh, 2010, when, of course, you won both the Archibald and the Wynn Prizes at the Art Gallery of New South Wales, uh, which is a, a huge achievement, given that only two other people have ever done that before, and that's um, that was Brett Whiteley and William Dobell, of course. Uh, so congratulations. Those paintings, I still remember seeing those paintings that year, <laughs> and I was really mesmerised by them because they're so beautiful. They were very small, actually. There was the portrait were, of Tim Minchin. Yes. And there was the um, landscape proposal for Landscape Cosmos, and they're both exquisite, beautiful paintings. And they had that resin um, yeah. la- overlay over the top of them. How did it feel that day? How did that feel that day when you won? I mean, do, were you expecting to win? Did you? Was it in those days? Did they ring you on the morning? What happened?
1: They did. Yep. Um, well, I so that was that was actually the fourth time I'd been shortlisted for the for the Archibald, and the first time I'd put something into the win. And actually for that particular portrait, um, like I really, really tried to make a portrait that would win. Um, so, you know, like I researched the past winners. Um, I'd just been in Europe. I had a show there and I went to like all of the galleries to to look at the portraiture and glean what I could. I went to the BP Portrait Prize in London. Oh, wow. And studied that. That and would And the fun. National Portrait Gallery. Yeah, so. Yeah,
0: and the National Portrait so, Gallery. Oh my God, yeah. in London. I oh. can't love that place (laughs) oh so you were actually doing a lot of heavy research to win the archibald
1: I tried as hard as I could yeah I did I really I really really tried and I knew that um and I and also I spent a long time on the painting so there were several drafts before that one that came up so
0: what can you tell me what did you learn from all that research into how to win a Mm. portrait prize what do you think the elements are to win a portrait prize
1: well, I mean, should I just give this information away for free now? This has (laughs) got to be worth something.
0: That's true, actually. Maybe you should do a special.
1: No, no. No, what what I kind of... What I gleaned was not to to go too heavy on the props in paintings. So you can subtly hint at, like, attributes, you know, relating to the person's profession, but you don't really want to have a a stagey, cartoony depiction of them doing the thing that they do.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. The like the the setting is important whether you're going to make that you know domestic or professional or or a more abstract setting so you you think about the way that they're positioned in a space that has to bring the viewer into the space with the with the sitter in a particular way
0: so you think there there should be a background there should be a setting
1: it doesn't no no it doesn't have to be like it can be a void behind the person but uh it does need to be carefully handled because it it needs to feel like a space that you can you can step into um in my opinion, that's that's what you're after. Um, keeping the expression like happy but relatively neutral <laughs> is, is part of it. So, <laughs> like a a big smile is not going to cut it.
0: Yeah, I know. Teeth teeth are a no no.
1: Yeah, exactly. Because it has like you know, it's a painting, not a photograph. So yeah, you've got to you've got to have that sense of infinite time in there. It can't be you know you can't be depicting a moment. You're depicting like an infinite span of time with the person in it. So that's so that's part of it as well.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: like there, there's also the the prosaic one that is you know the archboard alternates from one year to the next between a big head and a full figure, and that year it was due for a full figure, a big headed one the previous year. <laughs> so I knew, I knew that's what I had to do. That's what I had to do for that one. Would
0: you have done a big head if required, or would you just wait for the next year? <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, I wasn't. No, I wasn't proud at that time. I would have done the big head. <laughs> I just wanted to win it it wasn't like was it's the Archibald it's not it's not really about art it's just about winning that prize.
0: I'm very grateful for this list and I think everybody <laughs> is listening are taking notes I'm
1: being like I'm being facetious of course when I say it's not about art and um like every year there there are some stunning paintings in there you know that really are pushing the the genre of portrait painting so yeah it's just it's just a laugh but it's true that there are parts of the art world that you know look askance at the at the Archibald
0: Oh, yeah I look. It, you've just got to take it with a grain of salt, I think, the Archibald. But um, it yeah. is, it's is—it's a show, I've got to say. It's a great show yeah. to go to and, you know, it can be controversial. But, uh, you know, talking about controversy, okay, we're getting on to the win price. <laughs> Usually it's the Archibald, isn't it, that's controversial? Win price has been controversial from time to time, but not as often as the Archibald. And, of course, your year it was controversial. But, was. you know, what I didn't realise, that it didn't actually become controversial until a few weeks later, I think. I I researched it. It was like a few weeks later. Somebody had written, sent an email to some arts journalists saying, oh, no, that Sam Leach is... Um, landscape looked very much like that landscape of that 17th century painter, um, and a, mm. is it Pinnaker or Pinec- Pinecker? Pinecker. Pinecker. Yeah. Um Which, of course, you made no secret of referencing that painting, of course, but uh, that it was suggested that somehow it was, you know, plagiarism that you should have acknowledged him in the title and it wasn't very Australian. Um, mm. You know, it became a great story for a few days in the media and, you know, everyone was giving all their their two cents worth and the board of trustees ended up getting together again and having a Mm -hmm. chat about it and, of course, they found no reason not to award the the prize to you. This practice of of building on previous works in the way that you did has been recognised for a long time in art history. Uh, But can you tell me a bit about your approach to that painting and how you felt about all of that, you know, that episode that happened?
1: Yeah, well, the idea came from um I was interested in the way that uh people would manipulate the landscape basically to to fit an aesthetic convention and um there was a a Russian painter whose name momentarily escapes me. Um so i have to get back to you, but it's it's a it's a Russian painter with a Spanish name. All right. But um he he did a series of paintings that were um uh, it was like a proposal for an aestheticized cosmos. And they were, just, they were just like grids of stars. And I really liked that idea because I, I was aware of this uh, interplay between painting and gardening and landscape architecture so that, you know, so that paintings would, would suggest a design scheme that would then get implemented in the real world. So there was this, this push and pull, and the paintings—the paintings—in a sense came first, this imagined idea, and then, and then the landscape would change to fit the painting. And then this guy had taken that idea and said, "Well, you know, why, why just stop at the, you know, the top of the planet? Why not just go all the way up and start shifting stars around until they form a pleasing a pleasing pattern as well?" So I took that Adam Adam Pinecker painting, one of the main exponents of the Italianate school of, of Dutch painting, um, and those guys were building up. Um, Basically, fantasy landscapes in their studios, based on uh, sketches and things that that had either come from Italy or that they did in Italy. A lot of them never went to Italy at all, but they were painting Italian landscapes um, in this idealised form. And um, where I grew up in Adelaide Hills, you know, it's it's completely planted out with European trees. It's like it's it's beautiful in autumn, Um, and it's been significant. Like the whole landscape there has been significantly altered to look more European. So that was the same process that had occurred from Italy to Holland, and then from Holland to the UK, and then from UK to Australia. So I was interested in that relationship, and then I put the I put the grid of stars up in the top corner as well to you know to emphasise. Um, you know that, that we weren't stopping just with just with altering the landscape, and that was my that was my angle for why it was an Australian landscape, because you know it's a template for how you know how the Australian landscape was then altered and changed to fit uh, some you know some preconceived aesthetic ideal.
0: Yeah, did you get a chance to say all of that to the papers?
1: Yeah, I, I did, <laughs> actually. Okay, so uh, I felt, of course, you know, it was, it was really it was upsetting and, and confronting. And, you know, and the headlines were really, were really awful.
0: I could imagine. It must have been awful.
1: Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't great. Um, and, like, I'd never really experienced anything like that before. And I hadn't, like, I hadn't really shown my work, you uh, know, I guess I'd been shortlisted for the Archibald, but it's a different, it was a different kind of experience. I'd certainly never had, like, this level of engagement and scrutiny in a work. So that was a different thing, and so things like that attribution in the in the title and, and things were not really issues that I'd come across because I'd always shown work in a setting where I could just talk to people who were who were looking at it and you know have a discussion in that way, or the context of the way that I was working was was clear enough that there wasn't you know there wasn't any kind of confusion, and then all of a sudden this painting was in a totally different context and um, you know being shown in a light where where there was confusion. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, that
1: was that was fairly hard to deal with. A lot of the papers did give me plenty of space actually to to state my argument and say my piece and i was able to get one of my uh, art history lecturers at at uni to um you know say a few words about why i'd done the work that i was doing and she ended up being my supervisor for my phd so that was so that was nice so i can't like i can't complain that i was you know denied a voice or misrepresented or anything i I can i do but the, (laughs) the reality the reality is um, I was given, you know, really plenty of space to to say, and and in some ways, it was nice to, um, maybe not nice, but it was, it was good to have a discussion about, you know, about contemporary art and uh, and ideas, you know, in this very large public forum. Um, and so, you know, like I had an hour long interview with Monica Attar on the ABC, where we where we got right into all the details of it, and that, you know that that's like a pretty rare opportunity for an artist, not, not the context necessarily I would hope for, but nevertheless, like a pretty rare opportunity to really like to really get into some details of my practice and contemporary art and how I see things and what it all means to me and why I make the decisions that I make. So that side of things, yeah, you know, okay. That was, that was an aspect of it.
0: Well, that, you know, when they, that, that saying that, you know, any publicity is good publicity for you personally, it must've been almost traumatic, I would say, but, but for like, I remember it. Do you know what I mean? And I don't mm. have an adverse view of it or anything like that. But um I suppose you must get a feeling for what, you know, William Dobell must have gone through in the forties, yeah. you know? A tiny taste of it obviously, because William poor William Dobell had, you know, that whole court case and everything. But know, to yeah. be to be sort of you know in the media about an art prize is quite bizarre in a funny way it it? is
1: it is pretty bizarre and i I do feel for artists whenever they get caught up in these in these you know these controversies large and small that occur from time to time you know like a a public artwork that that people react badly to for some reason or uh, you know various other you know micro scandals or macro scandals and i just think like yeah it's it's strange for an artist you don't you never expect really to be in that in in that position you're not usually well prepared for it. artists um usually you know you're in the job because you know artists are usually pretty happy being alone for a long time
0: yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> not, right. not
1: necessarily you know not necessarily people who are seeking to have long conversations and you know and talk a lot yeah um so it's a weird it's a weird position for
0: you know for artists to get into yeah it's a Certainly, a story to tell your kids. Well, I'm sure you yeah. have. I'm sure you have told your kids. Uh, now, now I want to go on to talk more about your your sort of this overarching interest you have when it comes to your painting, and that's how it intersects with science and technology mm-hmm. and nature, because most of the time when you know, an artist who paints representationally is drawn to a subject matter. It's usually responding to something they've seen in reality or, or a reproduction of something from reality. Uh, but you've found another way to come up with your subject matter, which you've been exploring for many years now, and it involves using artificial intelligence and specifically machine learning. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a bit about it? Because I find it totally fascinating.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, artificial intelligence is you know it's becoming this huge phenomenon in our world and it already has really it's already uh you know influencing our actions you know almost continuously every day especially through the mobile phone but you know but not only that there's there's so many decisions about how our society is being run that's that comes from machine learning
0: so we're talking about can you can you just give me an example in case people aren't quite sure what you're talking about
1: Oh yeah. So well, I mean, the the, the major example would be uh, a search engine. So when you when you type something into into Google, the answer that you're getting back has been um, basically selected by an artificial intelligence, and the artificial intelligence is looking at you know your own personal history, the type of person that it thinks it thinks you are, like what, what sort of things uh, the people you are connected with on the internet, so your friends and, and peers, what what they might be interested in. And all of those factors are being fed back into providing you an answer with your search to your search. So you're not just getting the most useful piece of information delivered to you. You're getting a piece of information that's specifically tailored to to your interest.
0: Is that right? So a Google search that I make is not going to be the same as as somebody else.
1: Exactly. Yeah. I didn't yeah, realize right. that. Right. Yeah. And and the the kind of the thing is it's very opaque like what's going what's going into that so like why why is it shaping it one way or another like whose whose benefit is it is it well the answer is mostly you know jeff bezos and his and his buddies who are building building rockets <laughs> like that's, that's basically where the, where it's all going so there's only um there's only like four or five uh, companies, you know, organisations in the world that have these huge machine learning models that are incredibly dominant. It's, a, it's an insane concentration of power.
0: That's unbelievable. I only just read yeah. that when I was researching your work. I can't mm. believe that, that it's, it's yeah. so concentrated.
1: Yeah, that's right. And, and as I say, it's very opaque. Um, there's very limited government oversight or regulation on it because the technology is advancing so quickly that, you know, the regulatory processes can't can't keep pace because of course regulation is slow you you would want it to be you don't really want laws being done you know super fast but as a result you know these companies are running rings around uh government and further to that would you even want government to be uh heavily involved in this space i mean you can just imagine the 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 ramifications of that it's it's kind of a kind of a scary prospect well that's right so all of those all of those things are there that's not why i got into machine learning in the first place though
0: (laughs) why did you Uh,
1: so I was I was looking at initially I was looking at how um, animals and non humans were were perceiving the world especially visually and I I did a collaborative work with a cognitive neuroscientist called uh, Professor Mandyam Srinivasan and he's especially famous for his work with with bees mm-hmm. so he's he's kind of the one who um, you know found out about the way bees communicate through their dance and. Uh, and, you know, how they, how they remember their way to particular flowers and back to their hive. A whole, a whole lot of amazing, amazing things that he's discovered. So he was, like, he was a Prime minister's of Science, a Scientist of the Year and a member of the Royal Academy in, in London. Wow. Um, a fascinating guy. And then he uses that research now, or he's just retired, but he was using that research to create biomimetic robots that would navigate the world autonomously using these simple rules that were derived from the way that, that bees navigate the world. So to me, that was to me that was really interesting. Like, there's these simple rules, visual rules about how you how you navigate through the world. So from that, I was I was interested in how computers, um, in a sense, see the world. It's a different it's a different type of vision. So this computer vision uh, thing, and that and that then led me to, you know, machine le- like how machine learning interprets images and recreates them. So it's a totally different process than than humans would use to see an image. But it still creates something that is recognizable back to humans as as an image it's just a new a new type of image so i was just interested in that non-human gaze and how we can and how we can unpack that so i'm always i'm always fascinated in ways that we can have a a broader understanding of the world around us like different just different perspectives that we can get on it and this was a really different perspective so that's why i started to experiment with it
0: that's fascinating. So how would you use that sort of program um, to create your own art?
1: So my my initial idea was I would get the artificial intelligence to just look at all of the all of the paintings that I've done um, and in a sequence, um, so that it could then just predict what my next painting should be and save me from the hard work of, of deciding what it was. I, you know it was just like if I could just get someone else to look at my work and tell me what it was, then uh, I'll just I'll just paint that. No need for me to, to worry myself anymore about, you know, constantly, you know, trying to reinvent or understand or, you know, pick apart my own practice. I'd just outsource all of that. And I would just be able to come into the morning, uh, you know, hit print on the computer and it would just generate the day's work and I'll just i just set that up next to my easel and paint. So you know, <laughs> listen to listen to podcasts and music and uh, and spend a happy day colouring in. Um, and that was gonna be <laughs> that was gonna be my life for the next the next ten years in my mind. Right. Yeah, but but uh, wouldn't but that be okay. but
0: wouldn't that be just derivative of what you've done before? Is, um, is that not a problem?
1: I mean, yeah, it is. Well, it's a different it's a different way of looking. What it is, and yes, of course, of course, that is the that is the problem. Um, and that's that's actually a, an, an interesting aspect of one of the important critiques of um, artificial intelligence as it's being implemented now. Um. So initially, you know, it'll tell you things you didn't know about, about your work. And that is really interesting. Um, and what, you, what you're doing is exploring, if you like, the latent space between works. So, you know, I've got a painting over here of, uh, of a satellite and, you know, a painting over here of a monkey. But then with machine learning, you can look at all of the space, in like the visual space between those two paintings and all of the possible paintings that, that exist between them. Um, and, you know, pick out the interesting ones in there and, and paint that.
0: Wow
1: and it's not just between the two paintings it's between all of them, so it's like this infinite space of, of possible combinations
0: yeah right so what so why wasn't that enough that that plan of just having your work putting your work in and bringing another one out?
1: well you know um, I'm a dilettante so <laughs> 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 so as soon as as soon as I was doing that I thought oh wow well, what if instead of just looking at my paintings, I added in some pictures of medical robots what would happen then and then you know so I'm, I'm hybridizing it with with those things or you know sorry
0: what what are medical robots what do you mean by medical robots
1: oh like uh, you know robots that that perform like keyhole surgery and
0: uh oh um, okay so yeah. like actual machines images of actual machines so you throw that in the mix
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. Um, And so, you know, and and in my mind, it felt like what I was doing was training this this artificial intelligence Say, okay, I initially trained it on my painting, so it's got an aesthetic basis. It's coming from a similar background to me aesthetically. But then I can say, well, have a look at these pictures. How would you make one of my paintings on the topic of this? Um, And so then it it produces, uh, you know, medical robots is is one of them or... um, I've always been, like, fascinated with Fragonard, for example, so throw in a few Fragonard paintings and, and see how see how that comes out, you know, get a little bit more Fragonard in my paintings. And, and, and see, <laughs> That's and a see bit different
0: from a medical robot, a Fragonard painting. Yeah. Well, the most famous Fragonard painting that I can think of is The Swing. Yes. It's a Rococo style, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I guess you the link to me would be um, that period of the Enlightenment in France – Um, you have you know the salon culture so you know you would have these intellectual gatherings and that was actually one of the main vectors for science to be communicated you know outside of just the laboratories and into the broader public i mean it was a a, you know a narrow definition of what the public was but that was an important place for um, you know the propagation and development of of science and scientific theory so in a way those Fragonard paintings, you know, are a direct uh, <laughs> a direct precursor to the medical robots that, that came later on. We couldn't have had the robots without the Fragonard.
0: I don't know about direct, but yeah, I can see your point. <laughs> so, so really, what you're injecting into the program are things yep. that you personally feel a connection to.
1: Yes. Yes. And how exactly.
0: many images would you have injected into that?
1: So. I started with, um, uh, there's like a, a few hundred images of my own paintings. And then I've like, I augmented that by, you know, flipping them horizontally and rotating and cropping and things like that. So it, it kind of expands out to a few thousand. That, that's, the, that's the basis. Once it's trained on that, that many images, it can start to produce something that, you know, reasonably resembles um, an image that, you know, that looks vaguely like a painting I might have done. It still requires quite a bit of interpretation to get it back into back into a painting. But it's, you know, it's enough to, to get the gist. So what the computer is producing often has a lot of sort of, you know, glitches or, you know, melty type features or, um, you know, like blobs of colour appearing in, in random spots. And often I, I know what it's reaching for because I'm very familiar with the, the stuff that's been put in. So I know that that blob is, you know, really an abstract circle that I put in a, in a particular painting. Yeah. But it's you know it does require some work to get back to it. But having having built that basic model, I can add just a handful of images, like uh, you know ten or twelve of a new thing, and watch what watch how that influences what what comes out. And you can immediately start to see this new knowledge being absorbed and, and reflected back.
0: Oh, really? So even if it's only a very small proportion of the total number.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So, it, and you kind of get a feel after a while, you know, working with it about. Uh, you know the types of images it's going to going to respond to, and and the way. So you, you know you kind of go back and and rerun it, like pulling out pulling out images that caused a the problem. They can they can go or supplementing images that that were having a desirable effect. So you can you can kind of you know start to manipulate it um, a little bit. It's still very unpredictable what it's going to do, but you can you can sort of guide it into into particular avenues. Mm.
0: So I presume it it provides you with a number of possibilities. And yes. then you choose which one appeals to you the most, and exactly. then you develop a composition from that work.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I, and so, I initially started um, making paintings that were adhering pretty closely to what the computer was was producing. Um, so it did kind of look a little bit sometimes like a like a bit of a blobby mess, um, you know, that was coming out with some with some hints of a tree or hints of something else. Um, but I've increasingly been, uh, you know, like reinterpreting it back to a more, um, a more figurative, a more realistic representation, and so it's, so it's more just the composition itself that's being guided by the by the computer, and then the actual substance of the of the painting is um, is still me.
0: Yeah. Right. Well, you've got a show coming up at Sullivan and Strumpf, which is actually only opening only a few days from this, what the day that we're recording this. So it'll be open by the, when this this um, this episode is online, and it's called Everything Will Probably Be Fine, and it's a collection of. Uh, fantastic paintings they have been produced in with this method Um, a lot of animals which i know it's a lot of polar bears and that it's the polar bears that i found really interesting because on your instagram you talk about that you've devised a polar bear detector yes what is a polar bear detector and how um, did you, and how does that lead to these paintings of polar bears, which I should say are not straightforward to polar bears? They're sort of uh, <laughs> in yeah. All I've, sorts had some, of... I've
1: had some fun with the polar bears. It, I mean it, it led it actually led more from from the paintings to the to the polar bear detector. Um, so I just I just was doing some generations of images using this machine learning model, and it was producing things that um, to me were reminiscent of, of a polar bear or a polar bear on an ice floe, or the head of a polar bear floating in a corner. And it's not, I mean, it's not that hard to understand how it came from that because, you know, most of my paintings have been, um, you know, pretty limited palette, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of greys. And also there's been a lot of, you know, white or or light colored animals in the, in the gray spaces. So, you know, that's, that's kind of where it comes from.
0: All right. Um, But were you, were you surprised when it popped up at first?
1: I was happy, yeah <laughs> I was happy It's like great there's an animal that I haven't painted before this is this is wonderful, yeah
0: well, it's sort of weird because well, it's not weird, but it's it's so symbolic for us of climate change
1: yeah, exactly, and this was the thing because it um you know working with these models it it feels sometimes like the artificial intelligence is trying to tell you something um, and so you know these machine learning models the big corporate ones in particular use a horrifying amount of energy to to run so um you know like the natural natural language program so the sort of thing that allows you to say hello google
0: yeah.
1: to run one of those uh or develop one is like the equivalent of a thousand jumbo jet trips between uh, europe and the u.s like it's it's an insane amount of oh stuff oh my god and the data the amount of data that they use to train on is huge and you know the data centers that they're stored in their physical buildings they produce an enormous amount of heat they take a huge amount of energy they're ugly mm. um it's a whole like it's a whole uh uh, shadow city that's that's out there um it's you know at this, at this infrastructure yeah yeah and uh you know of course that you know uh, we're getting into it but the device you know the devices that we use to use machine learning um like the method of constructing them is, is environmentally damaging so you know the the elements like the lithium and, uh, and stuff that come out like it's like there's huge problems with the mining not to mention the ethics of the labor of it but this image comes out of the machine learning and it's like a polar bear, which of course is this, you know, it has been this avatar of climate change for, uh, you know, for decades now. And mm-hmm. I think, yeah, it's like the artificial intelligence has a guilty conscience about what it's doing. Yeah. It doesn't, but yeah. that's what it feels like.
0: <laughs> well, that's right. But that's sort of the artistic expression that seems right. to sort of be emanating from it in a yeah, way. And, yeah, and yeah, as an exactly. artist, you're grabbing onto that. That's you know? right.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah and it feels like it always feels to me like uh um when you when you're using machine learning it's like uh it, it's related to me to uh the way that the data and surrealists would work you know with automatic light uh, automatic writing and tapping into the subconscious it's a it's another way of approaching things but it feels like a mathematical subconscious or or maybe even a you know, are globally connected, you know, through the, like through the internet and the way that those huge databases are gathered, tapping into some some unconscious there and using that to to fuel it rather than you know just my own automatic scribbling. So mm. it, it feels like it feels like accessing some you know larger reservoir of knowledge than than I have access to.
0: Well, I'm sure you. I mean, I've noticed on Instagram that you know you often sort of put. Photos of books that you are reading, so I am mm. sure you've done a deep dive into all of that. And I mean, I presume things like whether a—I mean, I am guessing like whether computers can have a consciousness or whatever. I mean, that that must be something that philosophers are pondering and Absolutely. all that sort yeah, of. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, very much so. And it's it's a it's a fascinating question about you know about what is consciousness and whether it has it, and it's. Um, uh, it's some in some ways. You remember there was that thing about uh, the God of the Gaps. Um, so, you know, as as the scientific revolution unfolded over you know over eighteenth and nineteenth, twentieth and century, there was this idea that you know the things that God was responsible for became you know smaller and smaller windows of of reality. So when we couldn't explain something, it used to be oh well God just takes care of that, and then once we explained it, it's like oh well God takes care of that bit, and it was just this God of this ever diminishing space. It's like that with consciousness now with with artificial intelligence. So. It's like as soon as, as soon as artificial intelligence is able to do something that we previously ascribed just to consciousness, people suddenly say, oh, well, that's not really consciousness. The real part of consciousness is in this little bit that hasn't yet been done by artificial intelligence. That's Sorry.
0: right. That's right. Well, I, I yeah. mean, that's right. So things like empathy, for example. Right. I'm yeah. thinking like I have conversations with Siri sometimes just for fun, you know, mm-hmm. like if I'm in the car or something. And you saw, there, she's actually quite good company. Because, right. because if, if a, I suppose if a computer can be trained to respond to certain comments that you make in an empathic way, mm-hmm. then you feel like they are, they do have empathy.
1: Totally. So yeah.
0: it, it's really just in words, really.
1: It, it, I know. It, it, you're exactly right. And, it's, and, and this is the thing, like, it, like, you know, it feels like that's what it is. But then, like, what's the difference between feeling like that's what it is and it actually being a thing? Like what, like, what difference is that that you're, you're pointing to?
0: Exactly. And sometimes yeah. they can be nicer because they don't get annoyed yeah. with you. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> oh, it's, it's so fascinating. Yeah. It's such a fascinating yeah. area, you know. I'm sure, you know, there are plenty of podcasts that talk about it at length. But, um uh,
1: yeah, there's a lot. Anyway, so we haven't talked about the polar bear detecting Yeah, yeah, yet. So, yeah. Okay, yeah, so, yeah. So, so it, came from, it came from the polar bears um the paintings the paintings of them and then uh, i was looking at you know facial recognition and and object detection and learning how that that process works and i just i just had this idea that you could train a facial detection model um badly Um, you know a lot of them are that's a big that's a big aspect right all of the bias and prejudice that's built into these these models but i'll just i just changed the prejudice to um assume that everyone was a, a was a polar bear and the result is you've got this machine now that just will have a look at you and detect how closely you resemble a polar bear according, according to it.
0: Right. So you were like, I think on some of them you were like 83% polar bear, weren't you?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I made it so I can, <laughs> I can tweak it. To, <laughs> if, I'm in a, if I'm in a polar bearing mood, I'll just adjust the parameter and like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so
0: what, So why would you do that?
1: Well, first of all, I I like the idea that we, um, like, in in a certain sense, we are already very close to to polar bears, you know, right in the the overall scheme of things like size wise, um, obviously polar bears are are bigger, but like in the broader scheme of things, we're in a similar zone of of animals. You know, we're we're land-based mammals, we, you know, we share the same environment, we share a huge amount of the same DNA. We should be thinking about the world from the perspective of these, of these non-human animals. That should always be um, something that we consider as we make decisions. And, you know, it's something that I think is actually missing at the moment from a lot of the machine learning and artificial intelligence discourse is it's very human-centric. And we should always remember that we actually share reality with a massive number of of other beings and intelligences. And so they all have these unique perspectives and different ways of seeing the world. You know, this is like I was saying with with Srinivasan and the bees. Like, I'm interested in these different perspectives. And I feel like machine learning should should bring them along. So it's a way of just saying there is that, you know, there is that other way of of viewing the world, you know, like I'm 83% polar bear. Well, in a way, I am 83% polar bear and that is how I should be thinking about the world. Like 83% of what I'm thinking about should be how would a polar bear respond to this. Mm. At the same time, it's just a stupid joke.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I love that, you know, there are some great paintings in that show. Like there's one called Polar Bear Detection One, but it's actually a painting of two Burmese cats as if they were on a computer screen with sort of squares around their heads uh, saying you know polar bear which is sort of I suppose connecting other species to well sort of interconnected species in a way
1: yeah yeah exactly and it's and it's just about um you know when we when we use these um these models you know there's a tendency to assume that they're that they're well trained and well functioning so you know to, to rely on them as a as an accurate and effective tool but you know that's that's a pretty mistaken assumption like there's a lot of there's a lot of errors and problems that go into it the the databases that have been used to train these big models have are riddled riddled with problems
0: mm.
1: so um yeah i mean you know you look at the you look at the cats you've got that very recognizable um facial detection box that you you know we're, we're all pretty familiar with now um but instead of instead of telling you some accurate piece of information it's it's ridiculous like it's uh yeah Yeah.
0: well in a way that adds to sort of that sort of eerie quality of the work in a way because it makes you feel well it's got that science fiction feel about it a sciency feel
1: yeah i do like i always like i've always i've always loved science fiction um and that's a big element of, of what i of what i put into the works and yeah it's always um on the one hand um I, I love depicting utopias, so um, you know there's some there's some landscape paintings in this show that um, I think of as you know as you know really depictions of, of utopia. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other hand, you know, any time you have a utopia, there's the dark side. You know, there's the dark side that goes along goes yeah. along with it. The uh, you know yeah the total the total control the Logan's Run type type scenario where you're uh, you know trapped in the dome and going to be uh, going to be zapped at the age of thirty. <laughs>
0: Well, that's interesting to see you depicting humans in some of the paintings in those clean suits, which are those white uh, yes. sort of jumpsuit type things, uh, which people wear in those sort of contamination scenarios. Uh, and, you know, those big globes, those big that you call bubbles, the bubbles yeah. in the landscape. Um, so that, that's like a futu- very futuristic feeling, very science fiction feeling. Um, how do, what's your approach with those paintings?
1: Well, um, so the clean the clean suit figures uh, I've painted for um, quite a while, and they they come primarily from the NASA archives. So, okay. so NASA has have put all of their all of their historical photos up on the um, up. You know, they've made them more publicly accessible on a Creative Commons. And um, like I, I love them. I love seeing these guys working, you know, working in the um, constructing satellites and rockets. And many of the photos have, um, you know, is that is that phenomenon you've seen where uh, like a press photograph resembles a Renaissance painting because of the because of the structure of it? Oh,
0: uh, yeah, but these, yeah, yeah.
1: These workers, I find, I seem to strike to me these very evocative um, and appealing and romantic poses as they as they go about their work. And so I've used I've used them a lot. And I I once um, uh, had some people do some modelling for me. Like, I got some clean suits in because I thought, I'm oh, getting frustrated. I can't get quite the position that I want from these archives. So, I got these people in to, to put the clean suits on, and, and you know, I was posing them and saying, Can you do that? Yeah, yeah, it's
0: yeah. not the same. It's, just, it's just not the same.
1: Yeah, I, I could not. I mean, maybe they were bad actors, but <laughs> I could. Like, it just, there was, some, there was something essential missing for me. So, but, you know, it's the, it's the iconography, a uh, particular iconography of uh, representations of science. And so, as you say, yes, those those um, those clean suits are very associated with, um, on the one hand, yeah, like that uh, high-precision work in a dust-free environment or, um, you know, that, that very contaminated, uh, disease-laden type environment. And so that's a nice little interplay that I, that I like to have. And so when I put them into a landscape like that, it's like... Uh, are we protecting the landscape from the contamination of the humans, or you know, is it is it the other way around? So it's a similar thing, you know, with the bubbles. Like there's that, like there's that, there's that membrane that's you know creates. It seems to create a barrier, but you know, any time there's a barrier, it's like that. It's like that principle where you know anything always implies its opposite. Anyway, there's a barrier. You got to remember, it's never it's never going to be perfect. There's always some some porosity between it
0: mm. well also aesthetically the paintings themselves those ones in particular are very beautiful they're very romantic in a way because the landscapes are quite romantic as well um and actually it reminds me of your fabulous uh win prize uh, finalist painting this year that's hanging in the art gallery of new south wales it's called machine assisted memory of Harewood farm meadows and it's this beautiful misty hillside landscape with a cow lying in the foreground. And this is a good example of the sort of science and, and nature sort of mm. coming together because the foreground is it has this sort of man-made platform with this large, dark, curved, tubular form, um, sort of like, like a ship's exhaust pipe sort of thing yeah. sticking sticking up. Uh, and it's sort of not clear exactly what it is, and I think that that painting was created with the machine learning system. It was. Can you tell me a bit about that painting?
1: Okay, it's it's an unusual one for me. Um, the way it came about was I was just doing some experiments, you know, with the machine learning producing, you know, my um, my main body of work, if you like. Um, and a handful of images came out that uh, like struck a chord with me because they reminded me of this farm where i used to go when i was a kid it was like, so my uh my grandparents used to manage this farm in the adelaide hills it used to belong to sir douglas mawson the arctic antarctic explorer my auntie and uh and my cousins then moved into the farm afterwards and and, and managed it for, for several years so i used to go there you know every school holiday and on the weekends and spent spent a lot of time there and i loved it and it's in this beautiful spot in the Adelaide Hills. It's near it's near meadows and near the Kaipo uh, pine forest, it's like a huge pine forest. And it would get misty. It's like the rainiest place in in South Australia. Um, Douglas Mawson uh, planted it with these stands of specimen European trees, uh, so it's a very beautiful aesthetic place. So, so when this when this handful of images were produced by um, by the algorithm and it kind of reminded me then I started um, like nudging it to, to do more of that and, um, and to find it and so the, that image um, that, that I ended up I ended up painting was you know kind of the, made, in, made in that process um, it's not it's not a direct depiction of the of the actual farm although some pictures of the farm went into the model to uh, to produce it and it doesn't represent anything that looks like a scene that you would you would find there but again it feels like it <laughs> to yeah, me yeah right and that and that large um black structure um there, there used to be a, there was a claim uh like a gold mine an abandoned gold mine on the on the site where we used to uh you know go into it ridiculously dangerous um but you know we went in there and like it's given me a lifelong claustrophobia I'm just uh, <laughs> I'm terrified of those spaces it haunts me in my dreams oh um, did you so actually that-
0: go into it yeah oh my god right i
1: know and it was really scary because it had this entrance that you could kind of easily go in one way but going back out was a real struggle and so that really that really stuck with me and so that so that that black shape um uh it's like that mine but you kind of an inverted an inverted version of it and i wasn't like i wasn't really sure how i mean it wasn't necessarily important whether that came across to anyone else because it's a very personal painting for me um, and it just it just felt like it, but I did show it to my cousin without explaining to it, and that's what that's what he got from it as well, which I thought was which I thought was kind of interesting.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. Well, it has a very surrealist element about it.
1: It does. Yeah.
0: How do you feel about that label on your work?
1: I'm fine with it. I, like I love I love surrealist painting uh, and and surrealist artwork, and um, I've always been I've always been fascinated by it, um, and actually going right back to when i first started making representational paintings and putting figures in it um, and of course as soon as you put something recognizable in a painting you start dealing with symbolism and meanings that are, that are being read into it and i was very fascinated with that and kind of uneasy with it because it was a very different approach to art and i was like really impressed with the surrealists because they just went you know straight to it like they went they went kind of shy about having oh it's a symbolic meaning uh, but we don't really <laughs> talk about that no they were just like yeah it's a symbolic meaning <laughs> <laughs> Just, just deal with it.
0: Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> and so, and so, I was very, I was very impressed with that, and um, I thought, yeah, I wonder if I can, wonder if I could, you know, kind of get to a similar place within, you know, within my own way that makes that makes, um, makes sense to me. So, so yeah, I'm very, I'm very happy with the with the surrealism
0: label. Yeah, right. Really. So, so for example, that cow that's in in that painting, mm. um, where would that have come from?
1: Yeah, so they grew, uh, grew, they they uh, raised Murray Gray cattle on that on that farm, and um, so it's like in the in the stuff that the machine learning was generated, there was um, like a blob there basically. And then, as I was as I was painting, like I kind of I kind of painted the blob, and then I turned it into an abstract shape, and then I turned it into a bush, and then I was kind of looking at it, and I thought it's a cow, and then uh, and then put the and put the cow in there.
0: So, th- would that all that um, editing happen on the canvas or on the computer?
1: Um, a little bit of both. So, um, so usually, yeah, I paint it like I make a painting. Um, uh, I'll often photograph the painting. Um, upload it into photoshop and then and then make adjustments to it and then and then paint those back onto the paintings and then and then repeat that process so take another photograph put it back into photoshop and and adjust i also do like a lot of um collaging directly on the canvas so i'll um print out for example and the you know an image of a reference image of a cow that i'm planning to use to the right size and then just tape it onto the onto the painting to to see how it looks and, and and reprint and redraw
0: that's so, a good trick actually yeah because then you yeah. don't spend all the time painting on it and it's sort of actually better than seeing it uh, than doing a sort of a photoshop type thing in a right. way because you can yeah, see it yeah. in real life
1: it does it does translate differently um mm. and um you know I, i've done I've, you know i've done it for a long time so you I would would have thought I would have learned how to translate from a screen to a canvas, but I still can't do it very well. And it's not until the canvas and you know actually is in front of me on the wall that I can go, oh yeah, that, that has worked surprisingly well, or that just looks like garbage and I've got to redo it. Yeah.
0: Well, so, do you do that? Do you, would you do that same method for say? Because I noticed in in a number of these paintings, you have even though you said you use a limited palette, there is yeah. this pink that comes through in a lot of the works which is very you know striking color um would you ever use a patch of a color and stick it on a painting in that way to see how it works
1: uh no no (laughs) i don't i don't do that um and um the reason is i'm colorblind um not not very badly but just you know just kind of normal normal level Um, and so, uh, I'm not super confident always in, in how, how I'm reading colors. So I tend to, I tend to stick with, um, you know, just the ones that I feel reasonably, reasonably confident about. Um,
0: So that uh, pink color, that's something that you're drawn to just aesthetically, like you're, you've got this connection with it.
1: Um, so there's a, there's a quinacridone, um, red that, that I, I just really like the quality of like the intensity. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's reading differently for people who aren't colorblind. But <laughs> I say, actually, when I was when I was um, when I was at uni, one of the graduate shows, I had a painting up that um, had a little red element on it, and one of the lecturers just came up to me and said, "Are you colorblind?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Yeah, because I am too." And it's it's shimmering in a particular way that I know only works for colorblind people, because I had put this painting up saying, "Oh, look at this! Look at this really cool shimmer effect on the on the red. That's great." And people are like, mm-hmm yeah <laughs> apart from this <laughs> apart from this one lecture <laughs> and that's why so so How it reads, it reads differently yeah so the other thing um back to the color yeah um the other major color I use is, is a magenta um which for me is a uh, a color that's symbolic of uh, of research because it's a color that doesn't exist in the in the color spectrum it's not doesn't correspond to a wavelength it's only um, it's only like uh, you know the absence of um, the absence of green is what's what's making you read that read that color, and so I just. I just like the fact that you know there's a color that you can you can see and perceive, but in a sense it doesn't really exist. It's only it's only a, an artifact of our of our consciousness that's making that read as a as a particular color.
0: Oh wow, that's fascinating. And so
1: it's a color that to me symbolizes um, you know research in in that way, like something that only exists in in your mind, and then uh, and then you're kind of trying to translate it into reality. So that's that's why I keep deploying it.
0: Well, I get you know you you that's such an interesting fact, and I get the feeling that. You're always looking towards an academic side of art in a way, or not academic side of art, but like academic side of science when you're producing your art. Do you yeah. is that something that's always in the back of your mind when you're producing your paintings?
1: I mean, yes and no. It's like well, like I said, I'm, I'm a dilettante, so I just I just get interested in things as they as they occur, and, and you know, I listen to a lot of science podcasts and read. Um, you know really they're popular science books not not the real science textbooks popular science Um, but i find it like i do find it very interesting and uh you know read new scientists and listen to that uh listen to the nature magazine podcasts and stuff and um when like when a really interesting idea it comes out of one of those you know often that just sparks something i think oh yeah like that would be kind of an interesting reference to make in a in a painting so so yeah the the things just the things just come in that way um but it's sort of it's sort of like uh yeah it's just it's just reflecting uh you know my my personal whims and feelings as as this information comes to me and um i kind of i kind of justify it by the on the basis that you know the overall painting practice is about how you know science is is represented in in visual art you know historically uh, now and, and into the future and so you know all of that stuff is legitimate and i can just i can just use it and not worry about it
0: and uh, just on the issue of portraiture, um, mm. do you enjoy doing portraiture? I mean, is that something that you are seeking to do? do you- um,
1: yes, I, I do enjoy doing them. I don't. I don't do a lot of them. Um, like, there's been there's been a few commissions, um, and like I've done a few a few self portraits using using the machine learning um, as well. Um, it's 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 not really a a primary part of my part of my practice doing doing portraiture um it's i like the like i like the challenge of it um like it's like it as a you know it's almost like as a uh a skills development exercise it is great to do a portrait you know once a year or or twice a year so because you know when you as a a primarily paint um you know like non-human animals you get a little bit of leeway because you know like if like if the corner of the eye is a couple of millimeters out on like a polar bear it's like oh, that's close enough no, 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 <laughs> yeah, that's it still looks, right. still looks exactly like a polar bear exactly but if, it's a, if it's a couple of millimeters out on you know on a human it looks like a different person and that's really you know, it's really disturbing
0: yeah that's right it must feel pretty good having work in the national portrait gallery
1: it does Yes. having
0: a work in a, in a major institution must feel very validating as an artist
1: it's great um yeah yeah uh i mean the national National portrait gallery is such a it's such a beautiful one to be in and it's always exciting whenever the portrait gets kind of wheeled out for a uh, for a show yeah
0: i think it's out at the moment i think it's out Uh i think because i looked it up the other day and um yeah it said it's on display i think it is so that's a good thing
1: but but honestly any any time a painting ends up in a um like in a public collection you know a a university or a regional gallery it's so great um -hmm. like it's so great to have a painting in a place where people are going to be able to you know see it um you know and it'll exist and all like all of the collections are you know are fantastic whenever you get get a chance to kind of go back and see them it's amazing to see the paintings and it's just so nice to have work in that, you know, in that company, in that, and that environment, it's always, yeah, it's always beautiful when that happens.
0: Yeah. That's also why it's good to, I think I quite like the Archibald Wynn and Solman because it's lovely seeing all the artists together in this big space. So it's, it's really good. So it's a good set. So people should go and see your work in the Wynn this year. It's really, really great. Um, and also, of course, they should definitely go and see your work at Sullivan and Strumpf.
1: Yeah, and see how closely you resemble a polar bear.
0: Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> go and see that. Yeah. Or, and we, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't have time and we haven't touched on your sculpture work or your installation work or anything like that, but obviously, you know, there is a lot of other work that you do as well. And um, thank you so much for joining me today, Sam. It's been an absolute delight.
1: Thanks, Maria. Thank you. It's been, it's been a lot of fun.
0: What a great artist and fabulous person. Don't forget the show continues at Sullivan and Strumpf until the 16th of July. And if you want to read something else very interesting on this topic, have a look at Sullivan and Strump's online magazine, uh, where Sam talks with Professor Kate Crawford uh, all about this interesting area of AI, uh, more in depth than we discussed in this conversation. Also, there is an opening event at Sullivan and Strumpf on the 18th of June, where uh Sam will be speaking, so that is worth getting to as well. Uh, And don't forget to try out that polar bear detector. I'll also be getting a video of Sam onto my YouTube channel in a few weeks. And my latest video that is up there at the moment is of Del Catherine Barton, who you might remember was a guest recently on the podcast. As you might know, you can also subscribe to the YouTube channel so you can uh, get notification of any new videos that come up. Also, you can subscribe for free to the podcast as well. And the show is also on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter, although I'm usually on Instagram most of the time and sometimes there will be some video short videos that get onto there that don't quite make it onto Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening to this interview, and I hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters.
1: The way the way that I work, I, the paintings are built up in layers, and uh, so usually, uh, you know, I, I need to put a painting aside to, uh, you know, when a, when a layer is, you know, complete, and um, and then come back to it. But there's also paintings where uh, I just get stuck partway through, and I'm, it's not it's not obvious to me how to resolve um, a particular aspect to it, and I just like I just leave it aside for uh, a month or two or, or six months. You know, sometimes sometimes I even come back to things after a year or two, and um, and you know and think of it, think of a way forward.